a lot of people I admire without believing in the thing, all the things they say. One of them is an evolutionary philosopher, Michael Ruse. I admire him for his honesty. Uh, but one of the things he says, evolution is a fact, fact, fact. He says it three times, and the third one's in all capital letters. be a great title for a telecast if it weren't so wrong. Uh, he says it's a fact. It should be taken as an absolute fact. There may be some questions, uh, but no one has cause to really deny that evolution is a fact. But I would say that we do. We do biblically, but also we just do based on evidence. We have good cause to question whether it's a fact. So I want to talk about it today. I want to talk about why it matters first. It's easy to conclude it doesn't matter. Ah, so what, right? Uh, just a bunch of academics, you know, think that we descended from some monkey-like creature. Uh, what difference does it make? It doesn't impact my life, right? The recipe on the back of the Kraft macaroni and cheese box is exactly the same. Whether evolution is true or not, I can still make lunch today. What difference does it make in terms of an everyday life? Because uh, it does make a difference, and I want to talk a bit about that. Secondly, I want to explain what the church teaches. And on this part, I'm going to try to go through really quickly because we have a number of resources about that. I actually uh, will try to remind you of what those are. We do have articles. We do have telecasts about that. What is it that the church actually does teach about the creation of life on earth and the age of the earth? Uh, and then also I want to discuss after that, and this is where I think I had my most challenge, uh, my largest challenge in terms of trying to organize it in a helpful way, because I want to talk about sort of survey, if you will, just plain scientific reasons to doubt that evolution is a fact, uh, just based on the evidence, the physical evidence we're given in the world. And then if I have time, if I actually survive, you know, that much of the sermon. Uh, I'd like to tell you exactly the date of when Christ will return. I'd like to tell you the exact... I'm just kidding. It's not, that's, we're not going to do that. Uh, but I would like to talk about some outstanding questions, You know, some things that we, we don't always know the answers. Uh, and then how do we deal with the question of questions? What do we, how do we handle the fact uh, that sometimes there are still outstanding questions? Because when you don't know how to handle an outstanding question... That is an opportunity for the devil sometimes to, to get in you and to create some doubt and create some wondering. Uh, and then some people move. Uh, they leave the truth purely on the basis of questions they can't answer. But they find themselves going to other belief systems that after they've been there for a while, they learn that they also are full of questions they can't answer. And so are we comfortable uh, with that? So, again, the title today is, Is Evolution a Fact? One page out of 13. All down. So we're on a roll. All right, first, let me, let me say this here at the beginning. I joked with my wife today in terms of whether I'd have time to get through this sermon. And she gave me good advice, which is always true of me, which is, well, as long as you're disciplined in your introduction. I have a challenge with taking way too long on my introductions. And I said, oh, no, I think I'll do pretty good with this one, at least introduction number one. But introduction number two and three, I'm a little shake here on. Uh, no, I, I do want one more comment that I, I think is important because I, I want to make sure you understand that this, how do I put this? I don't mean this in a condescending way because I'm speaking to myself as well. I hope you understand you have permission to disbelieve that evolution is a fact even if you don't have a degree in biological sciences. 
uh, or even if you're not a paleontologist, uh, even if you're not a, a geneticist, you should feel completely comfortable disagreeing with the idea that evolution is a fact. And when I say evolution, let me clarify here at the beginning. What, what does that mean, evolution? Well, essentially, if you boil it down, and part of the challenge of the booklet is having to boil a lot of things down, not so much that they're always hard to boil down, but sometimes they are, but also because when you don't say something, it leaves open an avenue of attack. And if you say things about the eye, and then you don't cover the fact that this one study said this, then someone says, hey, this one study said this, and then they suddenly they think that your argument doesn't, you know, isn't sufficient. And so uh, I had to admit, Mr. Weston, actually, our discussions on the phone were very helpful in terms of uh, organizing this. I only have to cut uh, a third of everything I've written for it to be the right size, so prayer should be appreciated about that, too. Uh, I would appreciate that. Uh, you should understand you have permission, not only because the Bible doesn't teach evolution. That is the reason, just so you know, and we'll get into that. That's the reason. If you're in this church and you have not taken the time to prove for yourself that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that should be mission number one. Now, that said, if you haven't proven for yourself that God is real and Jesus Christ is real, make that mission number one and make the other mission number two. But those need to be priorities for you because the devil uses these things to try to shake our belief and our confidence in God's word. And so, one, if you don't know a word of uh, any particular paper on evolution, if you don't watch the Discovery Channel, uh, you don't see anything by Neil deGrasse Tyson because he can be so irritating, uh, if you don't watch any of that stuff but you read your Bible and you see the Bible says that life is created by God and therefore you don't believe in the theory of evolution, well, good on you because the theory of evolution by design doesn't agree with the Bible. It essentially says uh, that all life we see around us on planet Earth has descended from simpler forms of life and that if you trace it all the way back, you can get to a, just a single simple form of life, uh, perhaps a bacteria or some, more like something like a bacteria because even bacteria are considered to have descended from simpler forms of life. So a single-celled organism uh, perhaps of some sort. Now, don't ask where that came from. They don't really know. They're working on that. There's a lot of hypotheses. Uh, RNA world is real popular as a new one uh, concerning a, a variation of that, but they don't know. And when you read the people that admit, they go, we don't know. We have no idea, but we know what happened because we're here. Uh, that's, all they, that's really where it all boils down to. There's a part of the book that we had to cut talking about evolution, like, that it's like a faith. But that said... If you give them at least, okay, give us something to start with. Give us a cell. Give us a single cell approximately three and a half, four billion years ago. And what evolution claims is that by pure natural processes, no intelligence needed, uh, no designer, no creator, just like natural processes like the equivalent of erosion or gravity or weather phenomenon that God isn't personally directing, uh, just natural forces Left to itself, that little cell, its, its offspring over time would experience little variations. You know, sort of like a, a bird. Birds are born and some have beaks that are shorter or longer than others. Or, or some of their wings might be a little stronger. Maybe their muscles a little bigger, legs a little longer. Uh, so this, they would experience slight variations. And that the struggle for survival on the planet 
will cause those variations that help the creature survive and reproduce to be rewarded. So they get to make more like themselves, more with that variation. Those who have variations that uh, are detrimental don't survive, and so they disappear from existence. And that over time, just slight little variations, given millions, really truly billions of years, produces us. Uh, It's the idea that you can start with something like a bacterium billions of years ago and get a blue whale today. But not just a blue whale, also uh, a black bear and a, uh, well, you uh, and your mother, actually. Uh, That somehow, given time, all of this could happen. You know, sometimes we'll say, we don't see monkeys evolving into people today, and then the evolutionists will pounce on you because they don't believe monkeys are evolving into people. They believe that people, and uh, we say monkeys, you've got to be specific, but more like chimpanzees and orangutans, that they had a common ancestor just go far enough back, uh, say approximately 3 million or, or, or 4 million years, somewhere around that they had a common ancestor that was a lot, that was kind of like people, but kind of like an ape, and that there were certain variations that got it trended in one direction, some part of its population. Other variations got it trended in different directions, and some of those turned more into chimpanzees and, and, uh, and apes, and some turned into accountants and uh, race car drivers, you know, and the rest. And that's essentially the theory of evolution. It was really Darwin who gave that a a quote-unquote credible framework. Uh, There were lots of ideas about evolution before Darwin, but it was Darwin and his, he should be given credit for the simplicity of his idea that, look, if you just look at the competition for survival and you look at some variations help and don't, that might have power in the world, you know, to change creatures over, over time. Well, the Bible says that's not how we came to be. Uh, not only are you not a monkey's uncle, you don't have a monkey for an uncle, right? Uh, you are created in God's own image. And it's, it's important because there wasn't space for it in the, in the booklet, but there are those out there who believe in what they call theistic evolution, that evolution is true, but God directs it, that God is somehow using it. But the problem is, among many problems, the fact that it doesn't agree with the Bible, is that they completely embrace the definitions of evolution. And evolution requires that all the changes be completely random. Evolution doesn't have a goal. It doesn't have a target. It's really just about random variation that is selected by nature. Uh, in fact, I've got a big, thick book. I used to joke at the office it was the booklet, and it's the big. But it's a it's this critique of theistic evolution from all these different directions. It's just an incoherent position. The Bible doesn't agree, and so if that's all you've got, that's fine. That's fine. Don't don't feel like you're lesser somehow, or you're not smarter. Uh, that you need to somehow dive in and study all of this uh, because you don't. Uh, No one is going to be denied access to the kingdom of God for not understanding the subtleties of mitochondrial DNA, you know, and and what it tells uh, about the species. But not living the way of life and devoting your life to Jesus Christ, who says he created all of us, that will be a big deal. So don't worry about that. But also, I actually have some quotes from two atheists, of all people. I'll be quoting from a few atheists uh, during the sermon don't want to make a habit of it, but they actually apply in this particular case. One, I've always appreciated his honesty. His name is Thomas Nagel, and he doesn't believe in evolution. He does not believe that mindless forces – now, he doesn't believe in any mind at all. He's got some other weird ideas, but he can't accept evolution. He says it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit common sense that we could all come 
from this ancient organism purely by natural forces. And he writes, it is highly implausible that life as we know it is the result of a sequence of physical accidents together with the mechanism of natural selection. My skepticism is not based on religious belief or on a belief in any definitive alternative. It is just a belief that the available scientific evidence, in spite of the consensus of scientific opinion, does not in this sense matter, uh, does not in this matter, rather, rationally require us to subordinate the incredulity of common sense. Philosophers like big words. So he likes big words. But in other words, you look at the scientific evidence and there's nothing that, re that requires you to say, well, I guess I've got to throw common sense out the window and I've got to embrace all this. He goes, no, absolutely not. You're right to stick with your gut instinct that they've got to do more to prove to you this is true. They haven't met the burden of proof. But also one of my favorite writers, uh, David Berlinski, he's an intellectual. I don't have a quote from him. I'm just going to talk about it. I'll quote from him a little bit later. Uh, but there's a great video out there available of him. You might be able to, to find it out there. Uh, he was interviewed by some intelligent design folks. He's a part of that movement. And uh, he's just he says you can't escape the fact that for all the changes we've seen that happen in life, everything we can actually examine and measure Dogs stay dogs. Bugs stay bugs. Uh, there are these lines that seem uncrossable by purely natural processes. Bugs may become better bugs, faster bugs, stronger bugs, like the $6 million bug, I guess. You know, so you remember that. Uh, dogs, I mean, we can get Great Danes and Chihuahuas out of the same creature given enough time, but we haven't been able even intelligently guiding the changes to produce anything that's not a dog. Uh, and he reads all the scientific literature. Some of my favorite critiques out there are written by David Berlinski. He's just a, he's the kind of guy you have to read three times and you think you get half of it, but uh, he's just really, really uh, brilliant. And he, he says, don't anyone say that you know, only uneducated people don't believe in evolution. Actually, some of the smartest people on the planet don't believe. Uh, just their voices are few and they are quiet. So I want to start off with that to make sure you understand that you, don't, you shouldn't give in any kind of pressure to believe in it, nor should you feel that you haven't done your job disproving it, as long as you are firm and you know what the Bible says, which we'll summarize in a while. But let's talk about why it's important. I, I found an article on Slate magazine. I wouldn't normally read Slate unless I was looking for something in particular, uh, but I found this article. I thought it was actually pretty good. It was, uh, well, I say 2018. I actually thought it was 2015. I could be wrong. But the title was Evolution is Finally Winning Out Over Creationism. They were busy celebrating. It was by Rachel uh, Gross. And she wrote, for many Americans, evolution is in the cultural air we breathe. She highlights a particular show. In this case, it was the Big Bang Theory. How, how effectively it just mocks people that don't believe in evolution. Uh, as just simpletons and morons and people that aren't actually educated in any kind of way. Uh, she goes, it's, for, it's really become part of the cultural air. The challenge when you see percentages is that fewer older people believe in it, but more younger people believe in it. Uh, however, that is changing. There was a particular fellow, uh, he, he's the head of a particular social movement. I'll say what movement that is for a moment, but uh, they interviewed him up on this topic about evolution. His name is Evan Wolfson. And he said the secret weapon for getting society to eventually believe in evolution uh, is this fact. Old people die. That's a quote. That's his quote. 
uh, he goes on to say this isn't that getting everyone to believe in evolution, this isn't just some uh, given that will drift along on its own. It's something to be nurtured and defended. We have to work hard to get uh, more and more people to believe in evolution. He, speaking of his previous social effort, he says, we didn't win in that effort only because we had momentum. We built that momentum, and we worked hard to harness it to the work of winning. The same goes for educating young people, promoting a scientific outlook, and rational policy decision-making. None of it happens by itself. We still need to do the work. He's passionate about getting the world, as many as possible, believe in evolution. Now, who is this guy? Uh, Evan Wolfson. He was actually the president of Freedom to Marry. Uh, He's considered one of the major architects of the effort to get same-sex marriage approved at the Supreme Court and all over the world. And so now he's working just as hard, apparently, to get evolution accepted. Why would that be? Why would he see a connection between those two? It's important we talk about why this matters. I want to give you a couple of resources if you want to take a look. Uh, One is a... Uh, telecast on three dangerous lies of evolution, that's the title, in terms of why this makes a difference. And another is a sermon by uh, Mr. Ames, it's sermon number 599, titled Questions Evolution Cannot Answer. If you want to have a sense of why this is important, please do check out those resources. But let me um, uh, try to summarize some of these. There's an evolutionist named William Provine, very, very credentialed, very popular, very considered, a, considered an expert. He was at Cornell, and he had a, a debate with Philip Johnson, and it was uh, in the transcript. Uh, I thought this quote was particularly important. William Provine pointed out, he said, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear, and these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. That's the end of me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. He says these things are the natural conclusion of fully embracing the evolution, the theory of evolution as it is generally understood. It just, to him, it's, it's hand in glove. Uh, there, there's really no difference. Uh, and actually, if you keep that in mind, what he just described, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we see a prophetic comment concerning the Direction of society and where we're headed, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. We read, but know this, Paul says, 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. They seem very righteous and very, uh, very convicted, but denying its power and from such people turn away. You know, today our righteous warriors in the world are these culture warriors, and it has a form of godliness and selflessness and acceptance. But it's being driven by the utter abandonment of any idea that someone other than us determines what's right or wrong. Uh, what you see 
in my mind, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, is a world that is the natural result of believing there are no gods. There's no purpose in life. There's no meaning in life. There's no foundation for ethics. You can make them absolutely whatever you want them to be. Uh, one of my, I wish I could had time to read the extended quote, and I don't, but there was a website out there. It's, guess what? There's websites out there. Uh, there was a website, and it was, uh, it was kind of a forum where atheists and, and, and mainstream Christians would sort of talk back and forth. And one particular atheist, uh, and the, the guy ended up talking to him at length, was getting a bit frustrated, but not with the quote-unquote Christians on the other side, getting frustrated with his atheist friends because he felt they weren't being honest. Uh, they were holding back. They weren't completely embracing a position because they're so busy trying to find a middle ground uh, that they're denying the truth. And so I, I can't read his entire comment. It would take too long. Uh, but here he talks about theists, people who believe in God, versus himself, who's an atheist, and what he believes to be the truth. I'll read just one paragraph what he wrote. He's chiding his atheist friends, saying, We deride theists for having created myths and holy books. We imagine ourselves superior. But we too imagine there are reasons to obey laws, be polite, protect the weak, etc. Rubbish. We are nurturing a new religion, one where we imagine that such conventions have any basis in reality. Have they allowed life to exist? Oh, absolutely. But who cares? Outside of my greedy little gene, meaning his DNA, his gene, outside of my greedy little genes need to reproduce, there is nothing in the world that stops me from killing you and reproducing with your wife. Only the fear that I might be incarcerated and thus deprived of the opportunity to do the same thing with the next guy's wife. He says, some of my atheist friends have fooled themselves into acting like the general population. They live in suburban homes, drive Toyota Camrys, attend school plays, but underneath they know the truth. They are a bag of DNA whose only purpose is to make more of themselves. So be nice if you want. Be involved. Have polite conversations. Be a model citizen. Just be aware that while technically an atheist... You are an inferior one. You're just a little bit less evolved. That's all. When you're ready to join me, let me know. I'll be reproducing with your wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the right reaction. But the thing is, I, I remember we had a, this kind of sort of a, we did a bit of role play in Cincinnati. I was going over some of these things. We had this kind of uh, sort of workshop we were working on in the area just for kicks, trying to express something. And uh, Tyler Wayne, I'll, I'll, I'll name check him there. He, he played sort of a, try to argue that you could have morality without, uh, if evolution were true. If evolution were true, but you still have morality and the rest. And I played, you know, the, the role saying, no, that's not possible. And going back and forth, and it was illustrative that really there's no basis for reality. Chimpanzees eat their young, right? Uh, what is it that says we can't other than it's currently legal and currently is an important word? There are things in our society uh, I don't want to get into detail. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to get into detail. Uh, it's not the place. I don't want to explain what some words mean. Uh, but there are some things that we know are immoral. I would mention them and your stomachs would turn. You'd realize absolutely that's immoral. And they used to be considered immoral. But now if you look at the definitions according to the uh, uh, psychological text, they're trying to strip morality out. In fact, they say some of these desires, if you will, some of these wants are only wrong if either A, they make the person feel bad about them, or two, they influence them to try something illegal. 
But since when has a healthy state of mind been determined by what's legal? Well, I'll tell you what, whenever there's no longer any other basis for what's right or wrong. These things absolutely do matter. I'll just give you another couple examples before we jump into the details. Uh, Richard Dawkins, if you don't know his name, he is uh, one of the primary uh, promoters of evolution. Sort of, If evolution has an evangelist or even an apostle, that, that would probably be him. So uh, he's a very, very, very good writer, really. I mean, if you want someone who, who represents your cause well, Richard Dawkins can write. Uh, he can also be very biting and very rude. And uh, he had a, uh, a tweet uh, recently about there's some news that scientists are learning how to, quote-unquote, create meat. That is, uh, say, take a cow, and instead of you know hacking all the, the, the meat off of it after it's dead, you just take a cell from the cow. And they're learning how to essentially clone that cell and turn it into meat, and they can make steaks and they can make hamburger and they can make the rest now don't get me wrong i don't plan on eating any of it i'm just telling you this is what they're doing so that the idea is it may be indistinguishable because it what is meat other than a bunch of cow muscle cells all cooked really well and so the idea is if we just do this we can start generating meat from the cells without actually killing any animals and richard dawkins was thrilled he said oh i'm he didn't actually say this. It was Twitter. You can only say so much. But he was delighted. He said, I can't wait. Because what we need to do is take a human cell, you know, as we're going, and make some human meat so we can eat it. He said, because maybe that would finally help us dispel these taboos that say there's an absolute morality. Because eating human flesh is still a taboo. I'm delighted, right? Uh, we don't do that. We don't recommend it. It won't be on the menu at the Charlotte Family Weekend. Uh, society looks down on that. But he points out why. Maybe we don't want it socially, but if people think it's evil, there's no such thing as evil. And when you're taking a bite of a human steak that was cultured from a cell, maybe you'll start to realize that. He's gone further, if you can go further. He and another fellow, a... Uh, uh, psychology professor David Barash. David Barash published uh, in a magazine called Nautilus, a very kind of highbrow scientific magazine. And as David Barash was far more forward, but he said the same things as Dawkins. He said that we are coming to a point in society where we can do it. And we almost have a moral, in fact, he didn't say almost, but we have a moral obligation to do it. And that is to create a human chimpanzee hybrid. Yeah, yeah, that's a good reaction. Thank you. Um, that's exactly the right reaction. He says, look, we can do gene editing techniques. We can combine these things in the lab. It is a moral imperative that we make a half-human, half-chimpanzee creature. And you think, why in the world? That's mad scientist talk, but it's making it to this highbrow publication that people read, and his argument is this, that maybe when all of humanity finally sees a creature and sees that they could be blended with chimpanzees, they will give up this idea that humans are anything special. And he said, I wish I brought the quote, but I didn't have space for it. He essentially says, almost a quote, that even though such a creature would clearly suffer in agony, if mental anguish, if anything, the lessons society learns would probably be worth the suffering of a few unfortunates. This is cold-blooded, mad scientist, B-grade movie, theater such, and this is what's talked about. And the thing is, we think, well, yeah, that's a bunch of kooks in academia. 
We are living in a world where the laws that now reign concerning marriage and so many other things were first thought up by kooks in academia, quote-unquote, 30 years ago. Uh, these ideas impact society. When you truly believe you came from nothing and that you are a collection of accidents and that life has no purpose, life truly does have no meaning, then you begin living like life has no purpose and life has no meaning. So I, you know, if you're out there and you, and you believe rightly so that you're solid, I know evolution is false. You have to understand there is a world out there not really bothering to convince you because as far as they're concerned, you're a dope. You're not going to be able to be convinced. But your grandkids, oh yeah, those are the ones they're targeting. And that's frankly where they're succeeding. These things do make a difference. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. I know we're familiar with this, but I look at it actually in two verses. I don't think it's a waste. Sometimes you don't want to turn to all the verses, but I don't know, just seeing the words sometimes I think is vital, even if they're familiar. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. We are told very plainly, the fear of the eternal is the beginning of knowledge. The very beginning, the absolute start is the fear of the eternal. That's the beginning. And it's, you'll see it different ways, knowledge and wisdom. We'll look at one here in a minute. It says wisdom. But understand that, whatever you're learning, I don't care if you're uh, majoring in mathematics or engineering or uh, art or theater or if there is basket weaving anymore, whatever it is you're majoring in, if you don't start that process with the fear of God, it will go astray. Because there is no knowledge that it doesn't in some kind of way rest on that. I, I used to think that was kind of an extreme statement, and at least in my personal experience now, I, I've seen it's not. You have to start with the fear of God. In fact, uh, let's turn just a little bit over to Proverbs chapter 9 and catch a, a similar statement. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. Proverbs 9 and verse 10. We read here, The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I was talking with uh, Mr. Jonathan McNair just uh, the other night. We were at his house having dinner with uh, uh, he and Mrs. McNair and, and uh, Ellie. It was very nice. Thank you. That's, uh, you were there too, I know. And we were talking about how, you know, think of all the Greek experts in the world, the Hebrew experts in the world that know Greek and Hebrew better than any of us here, uh, that they could recite it. They could, they could recite passages from memory, uh, perhaps closer to the way it was originally spoken than any of us. And they don't know. What we know, because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the knowledge of the Holy One that has to be that basis. And we're living increasingly in a society where its foundation isn't just ignoring God. Its foundation is the firm belief that He does not exist. It's past just neglect. It's an active principle. And it's one that people are seeking to evangelize and they're seeking to spread. So that said, we're going to review, like Mr. Dawson's message, the whole New Testament. Uh, you know, we're going to review everything the church teaches about life uh, and the history of the whole earth. We're going to go very quickly because I just want to lay that foundation at the beginning. If that's the foundation, then let's make sure we got it. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. 
And let me confirm for you, it's not an illusion. You're hot right now. It's not. Don't worry. It really is. If you're wondering, what's wrong with me? I know. No, I can confirm for you. It's, it's warm. Thinking, oh, I'm getting so excited about this sermon. No, it's just the temperature. It's not. It's not a. It's not that. All right, Genesis chapter one. I am not going to try to prove in great detail the points we're going to talk about. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to summarize. We have materials. I'll, I'll do my best to refer to them so that so that you you know where to go. Um, and the booklet actually that we're making is going to talk about all of this. It talks about. Evolution from a scientific perspective, it talks about young earth creationism from a biblical perspective, shows how they're both wrong, and then provides uh, uh, what the Bible actually says. So we start in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just so you know, we believe that happened. If you don't believe that happened, uh, get out. Uh, no, we believe that happened, right? Uh, don't get out. I'm just kidding. Hang around and hopefully you'll, you'll learn something. By the way, why do we believe it happened? This is important. This is an important distinction. Here's not a reason we believe it happened. Because science has determined that it's very likely the universe began at a single moment that is popularly called the Big Bang. Now, don't get me wrong. That, that might be true. I like the Big Bang Theory. I'm not, the, not the TV show. You know, the actual theory, right? I'm a fan. I, I think there's a lot of good things about it. I think it sounds fairly biblical, but understand, that's not why we believe it. What if they suddenly changed it and they realized, wow, we were so wrong. Uh, now it's going to be the bologna sandwich theory, that somehow a bologna sandwich was sent back in time and a molecule from the bread somehow reacted with space spam. I don't know, something ridiculous. No matter what they replaced it with, we believe it because Genesis 1.1 says it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you've proven for yourself that God is real, Jesus Christ is real, uh, this is their word, then you say, thank you for telling me, God, how it started. Genesis 1 and verse 1. <coughs> now, when did that happen? That's where we get to a different question. So verse 2 <coughs> reads, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Without going into great detail about this, again, the booklet does, other materials do, we don't believe that without form and void state was the original creation of God. The words there, tohu and bohu, in the Hebrew, there's good cause to believe that they are the result of sin. If you go to verses in Isaiah and Jeremiah, a state of tohu and bohu on the earth, when they're used together, are always associated with consequences of sin. That's our reasoning, generally, there, uh, in, in short. Uh, and so the question is, well, how did it come to be so? What that does is it makes the, the rest of the events in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2 uh, a recreation of some sort. How did the earth come to be so devastated? These words can be translated a devastation, a ruin. You can read that. The earth was a devastation and a ruin. It was a chaotic mess. Well, we believe that before this time, 6,000 years ago, the earth was under the stewardship of the angels. And while under the stewardship of the angels, one particular angel uh, called Lucifer in the Vulgate rebelled against God, a leading angel, uh, and that as a result of that rebellion, the earth was devastated. Again, I won't take the time to prove all of that. I'm just simply explaining this is what the church teaches. Uh, sometimes we go out on the Internet to find the truth of things. We go out on the Internet to try to find, well, you know, I don't understand how to explain the dinosaurs. I don't understand how to explain this. 
And we want to make sure the church has things to provide. But even if we don't have physical materials, though we have more than you might think, we have ministers able to explain. And so people get caught up in these other ideas, young earth ideas and such. The church has has never taught, at least not since Mr. Armstrong's day and ours. Uh, Rather, we believe the earth has an older history and that under Satan's watch, because of sin, it came into devastation. And then in seven days like that, God refreshed it all 6,000 years ago and made it beautiful and recreated life. Some of it may have been similar to life that may have existed before, some of it brand new, but one was definitely brand new, and that was humanity. Humanity was a new creation. You turn to verse 26 of Genesis 1, where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the air, over the... Uh, sorry, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, in chapter 3 and verse 1, uh, we're introduced to the devil. And notice the devil's already the bad guy. It says, uh, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman says, uh, oh, yeah, we can eat of everything but this one. But, you know, if we do that, it's, uh, we're going to die. And he says, you're not going to die. Probably said it just like that, right? You're not going to die. I don't know how he said it. But she eats and, and guess what? The world today. Uh, but that said, please notice the devil's already the bad guy. Right? Like if, if the Bible were a Star Wars book. He's already Darth Vader, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, you're introduced to him as Darth Vader. When was he Anakin? When was he, you know, because God didn't create him evil. That's why we believe there is a prehistory to the earth. The Bible talks about the angels who sinned, talks about their custodianship they left in rebellion. Uh, It talks about the the devil saying, I'm going to ascend above the clouds. I won't go into those details, but please read our materials. Let me recommend another one, for instance. Uh, We have an article in the 2009 October, uh, September-October issue, I think. No, sorry, it's 2010, September-October. Who is the devil by Mr. Ames? You want to know who the devil is? Then look up an article that says, who is the devil? If you're going to go to the internet, go to our website, right? Uh, we do have materials uh, to help explain all of this. Uh, those are the things that we believe. Let me recommend a few other articles. Mr. Weston wrote one uh, not too long ago. Actually, it was January, February 2017, titled, Did Dinosaurs Kill God? You won't believe the letters we got so upset at us that we said dinosaurs killed God. I want to say, do you read the article? You know, it's a creative title, right? Mr. Weston was excited about his title. And you're an idiot if you think dinosaurs killed God. We say, you're right, right? Uh, that's, uh, of course he didn't. Read the article. Uh, some people stop at a tweet and go, well, that was dumb. You know, it's like, read the rest, right? You know, follow the rink. Uh, it's, uh, anyway, uh, I could go on. I'm not going to. I'm going to move on. 13 pages, right? So uh, another article. Uh, a two-pager, March, April 2013, how old is the earth? Straight up. You want to know how old the earth is? March, April 2013. Uh, a whole article devoted to that. Uh, I, I didn't get the uh, title, but Mr. Seselka wrote one in the Living Church News, the 7,000-year plan. 
He actually gave a sermon here discussing that and, and, and uh, made that in articles in the Living Church News. Just go search for it on the website. So we do talk about these things. We do have resources. That is what we believe. What is our basis for believing these things? Please note, nowhere did I say, well, we know the earth has been around for a long time and we know that life has evolved and so we've got to make room for that in the Bible. Never once did I say that. Right? We believe this because of what Jesus Christ says. When he's praying to God the Father in John 17, he says, to sanctify us by the truth, your word is truth. We don't know, how old is the earth? Science says approximately 4.54 billion years. Are they right? I don't know. Sounds good. You know, could be bigger than a bread basket, right? Uh, What I do know is that Eden happened 6,000 years ago. And then sometime before that, there is more history to the earth. Because the Bible indicates more history. Uh, it's difficult. We, don't, we generally don't officially embrace all the dating methods because there are problems. Uh, you know, People want to use tree rings to go back past 6,000 years. Or they want to use uh, ice cores in Greenland. Very popular. If you want to get an ice core, Greenland is the place to go. Uh, and some others. Because uh, they, they will indicate you know, hundreds of thousands of years sometimes. Uh, well, the tree rings don't go that much, but they're still a lot of years. But then you also say, well, wait a minute, they, they don't indicate a flood. Right? You get a bunch of ice cores. If the flood water is covered Antarctica, then you know, where's evidence of a flood? Tree rings indicate a flood. And yet there's in the tree ring evidence, you know, they don't see a flood. We recognize there are some difficulties. But that said, four and a half billion years? Yeah, could be. Uh, who knows how long Satan's rebellion actually took? Well, there is a pattern in the Bible, and I mentioned this in the booklet, where God doesn't intervene until sin is complete. Uh, it's a study topic if, if you're interested, taking a look. Like I uh, talked about Abraham inheriting the land and the rest. And he would often say their sin is not yet complete. Look at what he's allowing us to go through. We haven't reached the depths we're going to go to and God has yet to intervene. And how long did Satan's rebellion take place? What is it like for a year to pass when the only truly intelligent creatures are the spiritual ones? You know, God the Father, Jesus Christ. Well, the one we now call God the Father and Jesus Christ, those two. Uh, and the angels. I don't know. It's fascinating to speculate about such things. But do understand that is what the church teaches. 6,000 years ago was the Garden of Eden, the, the recreation week, if you will. And that sometime before that, Satan and the demons, well, they became Satan and the demons, but there was angelic host responsible for the earth for God's purposes. They rebelled, devastated the earth, and then in a week... Because God can do stuff as fast as he wants. Uh, you know, he recreates that earth, and that's the base of the world we see around us. So that is what we teach, and we teach it because it's what the Bible says, not because science requires it of us. Honestly, if we want to make everybody happy because of science, we'd embrace evolution too. But we're not going to do that because that's not what the Bible says. Now, that said, those will say, well, fine, okay, that's fine. Based on the Bible, it's fine, so whatever, the Bible But science says life evolved. You want to say it was created, but science said life evolved. And so I do want to take some time here in the sermon to actually sort of survey a bit of science. Uh, We're going to fly through. Imagine you're in a plane at 30,000 feet and you're looking down at science like it's a country. A beautiful but also terrible country. And you're flying over it and just surveying what's available to us to consider. Because what we're told frequently is that evolution is a fact. 
it is a fact. It's a, in fact, I should have got some of the more exaggerative statements, but well, making a booklet, you start swimming in quotes. You don't even start saying your own words anymore, honey. I mean, I say, honey, my wife. And I was thinking, you're talking to your wife, and she's like, oh, hey, do you want, you know, do you want some uh, toast? Do you want some coffee? Uh, well, you know, Richard Lenski's experiment uh, has been going on since 1988. And it's like, oh, whoa, whoa, what was that? So you're swimming in all these quotes. And, and I, I, the ones that were really biting in this particular case uh, uh, didn't come to me very quickly. But they'll say, look, is it a fact that the sun came up this morning? Uh, is it a fact that you're currently breathing? It is just as much a fact that evolution took place. That life has descended through natural mechanisms over time to create all of this. So that's the question. And it's kind of convenient because they set the bar so high, uh, it's honestly easy to test if something is truly that level of a fact. For instance, all of you right now, check, make sure you're breathing. Hey, all right, you know, you've got good, right, confirmatory evidence. I'm just making sure nobody fell over right now. All right, let's just look at a few things. We're just going to survey, for instance, fossils. You know, you dig in the earth and you find these amazing Bones of these amazing creatures. Uh, as a kid, I loved. I had trading. They're like trading cards. You could subscribe to things. Uh, as as uh, I saw, it was the same box that my mom had for recipes, and the cards were the same size. But this was for kids instead of recipes. It was about dinosaurs. So I tried to ignore that my mom had something similar because I wanted to be more masculine, right? I didn't want to be the recipe box, just the dinosaur box. But like every month they would send you a new card about a new dinosaur, and I would collect them like, like trading cards because I, I, I loved that. You know, if Jurassic Park had come out when I was a kid, it'd be over. Uh, I probably wouldn't be able to think of anything else. It's just a, the most amazing thing. I, dinosaurs are fascinating. And fossils are about more than dinosaurs. There's plant life. There's animals that aren't dinosaurs. The point is, when we dig into the earth, we uncover a world that does seem different than today's. And scientists, many, will say this is evidence of evolution, that life has changed. But Darwin actually made an interesting comment. When he published uh, his book, On the Origin of Species, in 1959, he wrote this about the fossil record of his day, almost 160 years ago. He wrote, but as by this theory, that is his theory, innumerable transitional forms, because you're slowly changing bit by bit, right, generation after generation. He says, innumerable transitional forms must have existed. Why do we not find them embedded in countless numbers in the crust of the earth? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this... The fact that the fossils don't reveal gradual evolution. He says, this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be argued against my theory. But he did believe there was hope. Uh, he said, the explanation lies, I believe, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geologic record. He recognized that, you know, we're not done digging. It's 1959, I'm sorry, 1859. There's still more digging to take place. And perhaps as we do, we'll find more of this kind of smear of life, if you will, this kind of finely graduated, uh, constant evolution. We haven't. It's been almost 160 years later. We haven't. And many paleontologists will still say, well, we're still digging. We're still digging. But in uh, 1977, one of their own, Stephen Jay Gould, called them out on that. Now, he gets bitter when... Uh, people who believe in creation use this quote. I say he gets bitter. He's, he's dead. But he did get bitter 
Um, because here he's just being on, and he believed in evolution. He suggested a different uh, variation called punctuated equilibrium that he hoped they could, they could use to explain the problem he saw. Time has not been kind to it, actually. It is, a, it is not an explanation. But he noted the problem. Uh, what he wrote in 1977, uh, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference, however reasonable, but not the evidence of fossils. He says Darwin's argument, that is the argument the fossil record is incomplete, still persists as the favored escape of most paleontologists from the embarrassment of a record that seems to show so little of evolution directly. In exposing its cultural and methodological roots, I wish no way to impugn the potential validity of gradualism, for all general views have similar roots. I wish only to point out that it was never seen in the rocks. That is, when you actually dig into the earth, you don't see gradualism. Now, you'll see some examples that are put together. You'll see... Uh, a, a series of uh, supposed horses as, as the horse evolution has persisted. Uh, you'll see whales, for instance. And of all things, they say the best attested is supposedly people. Why is it the one fossil that seems to fit evolution best happens to be people fossils? Uh, that should cause some suspicion. They'll show some of those, but why do they show those so, so consistently? Because they don't have much else. Not in the kind of way that Darwin was hoping for, and even those barely suffice. Uh, again, David Berlinsky, uh, an atheist, not actually a religious believer, noted this. He says, there are gaps in the fossil graveyard, places where there should be intermediate forms, but where there's nothing whatsoever instead. It is simply a fact. Darwin's theory and the fossil record are in conflict. There may be excellent reasons for the conflict. It may in time be exposed as an artifact, but nothing is to be gained by suggesting that what is a fact in plain sight is nothing of the sort. He concludes here that that there are places where the gaps are filled is interesting. It is the gaps, but sorry, it's interesting but irrelevant. It's the gaps that are crucial. You know, people say you can't prove a negative. I had someone attack me online saying you can't prove a negative. Well, so I guess you can't prove Santa Claus doesn't exist, or you can't prove, yeah, you know, uh, no, you can prove a negative. In particular, when the positive implies something that is not so. And evolution implies there should be no gaps of the nature like we see, and yet they're there. Uh, the fossil record has gaps in the graveyard. And so as we survey that evidence, uh, there is evidence against evolution there. Uh, we talk about complex organs uh, you might recall, we'll just mention it for the sake of time and not turn there, Psalm 139 and verse 14, where David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David recognized, man, I'm awesome, but in a humble way. He said, I am amazing, look at me. Uh, he goes, this is fantastic, my hands work and my eyes, and, and God has woven me together. But it humbled him to recognize that, knowing he did not weave himself, uh, that someone did. Well, complex organs have long been uh, a, a challenge for evolution. Darwin himself recognized that. Again, quoting from Darwin himself, he wrote in Origin of Species, to suppose that the eye, the human eye, 
with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration. That is, to suppose that could have been formed by natural selection? Seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. Now that said, sometimes creation is stopped there and they don't quote the rest. Because it makes it seem like he didn't believe the eye evolved. And he did. He did believe it evolved. And he talks in the next paragraph, I'll skip for the sake of time, that the reason tells him that yet maybe it could have if at every step of the way there was still improvement. That somehow you start with like a, you know, something simple and that every little advancement, as long as it benefits the creature, then maybe, just maybe, the eye also could evolve itself. Um, time hasn't been kind to that idea. It still persists. One of my, say my favorite, it's kind of like uh, your favorite band that's terrible, right? Or your favorite bad movie. Uh, but one of my favorite uh, uh, champions, if you will, of the evolution of the eye is Richard Dawkins. Uh, you can find multiple videos on, on YouTube in the uh, 1990. Uh, one, I think, for the Royal Society, he did this amazing series of lectures. He props and everything, explaining how the eye could evolve step by step. Just start, you got to start with something. They always got to start with something. But you got a little light patch of some sort, like some cells that are light sensitive with maybe a thin, clear covering of goo, you know, who knows, and, and some dark patch of pigment beneath it. But then over time, maybe there's a little dent there. And the dent would allow you to detect direction with the light. Right, And then maybe the dent gets deeper and deeper with many generations as evolution rewards, right? Until finally it's so deep that it's really not bad with direction. Now you know which way the shadow or light is coming from if you're some starfish critter or whatever you are. But now imagine that the top starts to close in and leave a little pinhole. Well, now you've actually got some degree of focus. Have you ever made a pinhole camera, uh, for instance? I've done pinholes for uh, eclipses where you put a pinhole in something and it focuses the image of the eclipse of the sun on the backside of the box. So now with just a pinhole, you've got a bit of focus. Well, now imagine that just there's some sort of covering there, just a thin covering. There's not a lens, but just a thin covering, maybe to protect it. But even a thin bit of, uh, like, like even a little bag of water. Like you ever use water to magnify something? Well, that actually could improve focus. And then imagine over time that little thin covering gets better and better and better until next thing you know, many generations later, you've got a fully functioning eye, a big ball with a little hole and a, a lens over it. Voila, you've got an eye. Okay, that's the way the story goes. You can find a lot of videos. In fact, if you get his book, Climbing Mount Improbable, whole chapter five, Dawkins devotes to that story. But notice what it is. It's a story, right? It's a story. It's not evidence. It's not fact. It's a story. I, I could actually say, well, son, here's how the presents got under the tree and how the cookies got eaten, is there's a big guy in a red suit. And once a year, he goes to houses all over the world and he slides down the chimney and he drops off some presents and he eats the cookies. Uh, that's how all of us Saturnalia keepers, you know, I don't believe it. We don't keep, uh, this video gets out, right? Maybe we don't believe in Christmas. We don't keep Christmas. But still, that's a story. Where's the evidence? There have been studies trying to show that that's plausible, but they've all been taken apart. Uh, in general, even a lot of evolutionists don't believe those. There's a challenge with evolutionists in general, and sometimes we can be the same way if we're not careful, is they only mention the problems when they have a solution. 
uh, Casey Luskin, he's a researcher for the intelligent design movement and evolution and such, and he's, he calls this, uh, I write it down, I remember the word, he calls it retroactive confessions of ignorance. They'll say, oh yeah, the eye can evolve, no problem. No, Oh yeah, the eye can evolve, of course it can, of course it can. Why are you asking? Of course something like the eye can evolve bit by bit. Until the real problems that are there, they find some kind of solution for. And then suddenly it's, well, you know, the eye can't really evolve like that. It's just not possible, you know. But now, you know, we really think this can do that. They're like retroactive confessions of ignorance. Let me just explain why that is an infeasible problem. Because the eye doesn't evolve by itself. If you don't have nerves that can communicate the increased information to your brain, it doesn't make a difference for the eye to improve. In fact, it's far different from sensing a shadow, and then suddenly you know what direction it's coming from. That's a completely different kind of circuitry. It's not just the neurons that are growing. It's the brain that has to be able to process brand new information it's never had before. It has to translate into muscle coordination that's never had to be used before. And you get a catch-22. The brain can't improve by evolution unless it has new signals to prompt it to improve. And yet at the same time, the signals can't improve unless there's a reward for the information they're passing on, and there's no reward unless it's processed. It's this huge catch-22 that is a problem. In fact, evolutionists themselves, this was a, an article written by Israel Rosenfeld and Edward Ziff at the New York, uh, for the New York Review of Books. They wrote, and they only talk about the weaknesses of Darwinian theory until they're at this point. The weaknesses of Darwinian theory and one, sorry, the weakness of Darwinian theory and one that has been seized upon by secular critics of evolutionary theory. It's funny, they don't even want you to know secular critics exist. Uh, is its failure to explain how the gene determines the observable traits of the organism. Uh, from an evolutionary point of view, how can complex organs such as the eyes, arms, or wings evolve over long periods of time? What about the intermediary forms? Concerning the human eye, for example, they continue, how is it possible that different parts of an eye to evolve simultaneously the lens, the iris, the retina, along with the blood vessels necessary for supplying the eye with oxygen and nutrition, as well as the nerves that must uh, receive signals from the retina and send signals to the muscles of the eye? Could these precise nerve and vascular networks be created by gradual random changes in genes over long periods of time? As Darwin claimed... Similarly, how can random mutations in natural selection create not only the necessary muscles and bone that make up the arm, for example, but organize the blood supply and nerves so that after hundreds of thousands of years, an animal evolves with functioning arms and legs and eyes? They understand that it can't. It can't. Now, they want to offer a solution that hasn't been tested yet, but they only admit stuff like that when they think they have a solution. Uh, there's a quote I really would love to give by Richard Lewontin where he says, Why do we accept these just-so stories? Why do we treat them like evidence when it's just a story? I'll just cut to the chase. He says, it's because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It's a prior commitment. And then he says, uh, moreover, that material, meaning that there's only a material world. There is no God. He says, moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So understanding you're not dealing with evidence, you're dealing with a worldview. Uh, so for this last part, as we're going to, so in other words, eyes don't, don't do it either. I want to move on to the last part. I want to, man, the, the living education kids were working so hard to get this done for me, so I do want to get this part in. So if the living education guys, if the volunteers could come over here to my right. And the last thing I want to talk about is features of the cell. 
because nothing's really supporting Darwin. Much hasn't changed actually since his original writing in 19, I'm sorry, 1859. But now we've actually unlocked the cell. We begin to look at DNA and proteins. And here's what we've learned. DNA, in your, every one of your cells that's a normal cell, every one of your cells that's a normal cell, believe it or not, even though it's microscopic, you have like six feet of DNA, a strand six foot long. That DNA contains the information used to build you. But what are you built out of? Uh, Lego? Anybody built out of Lego? No? No? All right. Uh, I can tell you what you're built out of. You're built out of protein. You are protein. Uh, the DNA is used to code proteins. The problem is the proteins also used to build DNA. So they kind of have a catch-22 also there. But still, so now that we've cracked open the cell, we can actually calculate numbers. We can actually see if evolution is probable or not. We can actually go, okay, could this actually happen? Because if an organism changes, it's because its proteins have changed. And if the proteins have changed, it's because the information in DNA has changed. And information changes. You ever had a program go wrong? You know, sometimes a one or zero just gets switched in your program. Well, sometimes parts of DNA do get changed. So we have some calculations we want to uh, get across. Uh, let's see, for this first one. Okay, I need, uh, oh no, it's not the first one, second one. All right, I need student number one, student number one. All right, look at, what a handsome guy, right? Okay, you know, come, come further, come further. Stop, no, a little further. Stop, a little further. I'm just kidding, all right. Uh, okay, he's got a sheet of paper that says 1,000, right? You have to understand probability a bit. Um, like if I was to toss a coin and get heads, uh, and say I guessed it ahead of time. Okay, call heads. And I toss it and get a coin that says heads. What were the, what's the probability of me being right with a fair coin? One out of two. Right, one out of two. But let's say I said, okay, the next ten tosses will all be heads. Like, yeah, all right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Don't gamble. But yeah, I'll take that. Toss, toss, toss. And heads, 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 heads. Ten heads, right? What are the odds of that? Well, not quite a thousand. I kept all these numbers round, but about one in ten thousand, sorry, one thousand twenty-four. Wouldn't you think the coin was probably biased? Right? Right? I mean, you would. You're like, you are a cheater, Smith. I know you're a cheater. Because you're not going to get ten heads in a row, let alone when you called it ahead of time. The one time you didn't call it, maybe you'll get ten heads in a row. Um, okay, one out of a thousand. Understand, one out of a thousand is way less probable than one out of two. In fact, you wouldn't expect one out of a thousand to happen anytime soon. The challenge is the numbers we're about to talk about are so large that it's kind of hard to give a sense. You know, we just say, well, this is the same number of pennies. If you stack these pennies, it's as tall as the Empire State Building. Okay, I, I kind of get that, but these numbers are too big. They're too big. So I've asked these wonderful guys uh, to be able to help so you at least get a sense of the kind of bigness we're talking about in terms of probability. All right. So let's say we played a game with God. And God said, all right, here, here we go. I'm going to pick one atom. An atom is beyond microscopic, right? It's the smallest unit of matter. I'm going to pick one atom in this room. And you got one chance to guess the atom I picked. Go. Right? What are the odds, right? Uh, imagine that. That would be really hard. Okay. What if God said, okay, I'm sorry, I... You did that too easy. How'd you find that one? Um, I'm going to pick one atom in the universe and take as long as you want, but I want it right on the first guess. What are the odds, right? Well, we'll show you the odds. All right, I need uh, join student one, students two through seven, and student A. 
the odds of you getting the one atom in the whole universe that God happened to have picked is one out of this. That should be 80 zeros. Let's just agree that's not going to happen, okay? Uh, You're not going to pick that one atom. Now, let's consider the odds of just one protein, a small protein, just 100 amino acids. That's actually really small. It's smaller than the average. One protein randomly forming, just randomly coming together. We can calculate that. In fact, I actually got this figure out of the, the paper of an evolutionist who uh, in the, he completely said this is accurate. The math is pretty simple. What are the odds of one simple, small protein forming by chance? Okay, I need student A to leave, but the rest of you stay, and you all need to be joined by students 8 through 11. You're going to have to scoot over, Mr. Man, uh, a little way. So 8 through 11, you all come. Okay, now this is the problem. Now that was the other one was probably finding one random atom in the whole universe on the first try. This is the odds of a small, small protein forming by random chance. One out of blah. Um... <laughs> I don't ask me for the name of this one. I know it's got a name, but I don't know what it is. That's a huge number. This is essentially math's way of saying that is never going to happen, right? Okay, thank you very much. We're not done with them yet, so don't applaud yet because we, we don't want to reward them too early. It's like tipping the waiter too early. So good job. All right, you guys go back over here in the pool of awesome students, and you'll come back out in a minute. All right, so now an evolutionist would respond properly by saying, hey, 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 get back off with the students, man. I'm not saying proteins form accidentally, out of nowhere. Come on, man, who do you think I am? I am, I was going to say Richard Dawkins, but he would never talk like this. You know, proteins don't form randomly. Rather, it's evolution. You take a protein, and with very slight modifications, take a protein that works, and just modify it to become a protein that works better. Just changes its shape a little bit. That's what we're talking about, man. Lay off with all your living edge students. They're intimidating. They're also smart and handsome and beautiful and, and biblically competent. Uh, all right, so let's talk about that because that has also been studied. Uh, let's say I need students 1 and B. 1 and B. You get the right hand, left hand, Seth? That was hard. We worked on that. All right. Now this is is a is rounding uh, is a, the approximate age of the universe in years. It's approximately they think 13 billion years. I, I left the three off so I could use all these zeros. Uh, so it's approximately 13 billion years old they think, and that's 13 billion. It's actually 10 billion, but that would be the age of the universe in years. So from the Big Bang, according to current theories, till right. Now, in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is approximately how many years they think the universe has been. So now, Douglas Axe and Ann Gager, uh, Douglas Axe, a biochemist, uh, researched and experimented, what are the odds that we could take a simple protein and just by two small mutations, just change two of the amino acids so that it became a very similar protein, a small step, an evolutionary step, what, how long, given we know rates of mutation, how long would it take for that one protein to change into the other protein? Okay, I need student B to go back, but I need students 2 and 3 to come up. How many years would it take for that one protein 
to change into the other protein this many years. That's officially more than the other number of years, just so you know. In other words, given the whole lifespan of the universe, it wouldn't be enough for that protein to just simply randomly go through such a change. Understand, if the random change doesn't happen, natural selection has nothing to choose. Evolutionists like to say that natural selection has created everything. It can't. Natural selection creates nothing. I recommend a book by Douglas Axe called uh, uh, Undeniable. Rather, it's randomness that creates the possibilities. Natural selection just chooses among them. So if you want just one protein to go through just two amino acid changes to become this other protein, it would take this many years. How, how many universes is that? That's like taking our universe from the beginning to now, and then that would be a hundred quadrillion universes as old as ours, one after the other, for that one protein to experience that change for natural selection to happen. I think we all agree that's just not going to happen, right? That's been part of the neat thing about DNA is they can now calculate this stuff to see if it's possible. Not just fancy stories about the eye, so a little goo does this and a little thing changes the shape. All that stuff is proteins having to happen. Uh, and the odds are just that they won't. All right, if you don't mind, a round of applause for our living ed students. Thank you all very much. Y'all can go sit down. It's a... And guys, y'all can keep... Those papers, they are all y'alls. So what I gave them a bunch of zeros. That's all I gave them was a bunch of zeros, I guess. It's like giving them nothing. So you, you have my esteem as well and my, and my thanks. They do find that evolution does take place, but it often takes place by breaking things. Um, like uh, often, not always, when bacteria becomes resistant to antibiotics, it's because the target of the antibiotic has experienced a mutation where it no longer functions but it's, in the end, still helpful for the bacteria. Kind of like you're trying to, to, to repel an invader. You can build a fancy new weapon, laser gun or something like that, or you can burn your bridges. And sometimes, for survival's sake, you burn your bridges. Uh, they do find evolution happens, but not at the rate at which new creation can be possible. Uh, there's actually a, I have a quote from... Matt Liasola, he's a Finnish biochemist, and he's actually an engineer. And he engineers – his job, his, his business is to actually mutate bacteria to make them better bacteria. He knows it inside and out. It's what he does uh, for industries, try to take bacteria and make them better bacteria. And one of their approaches is to accelerate evolution. They will bombard it with radiation and UV rays to create random changes and accelerate evolution, and they'll select the ones kind of simulating billions of years of evolution in the laboratory, you know, over months. But they found that even modest changes, when it's something truly new and novel, cannot be achieved in that way. They have to actually go in and intelligently, biomechanically engineer it. His comment about that was says, in practice, these kinds of changes, just new changes, uh, new function is completely out of reach for random methods, even further from what actually happens in nature. Proteins can be modified with random and specifically designed methods, but only within narrow limits. The changes are not fundamental. Basic structures cannot be changed. But you don't go from bacteria to blue whales unless you successfully change a few basic structures. You know, as we wrap up here at the end, let's read Romans chapter 1. 
I wish we had more time. We don't. I'm on page 12, believe it or not. Uh, I wish we had time to talk about just universal common descent in general. There's some fascinating research in that regard, whether it's Darwin or not. Uh, evolutionary trees versus dependency graphs and some things we've looked into. It's Honestly, this is an exciting time uh, for science to be prying into the workings of life because we're learning so much. But here's the thing. I want to read a couple of quotes, and then I want to read Romans chapter 1. Not the whole chapter. Uh, first from Francis Crick. Francis Crick is the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA. Uh, Crick and Watson discovered the, the intertwined nature of DNA and its structure is amazing. And he wrote this. Biologists much, uh, sorry, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. What's he saying? That biologists have to train themselves to ignore what their eyes are telling them. Essentially, Marx Brothers, any Marx Brothers fans? Chico Marx has a line. Who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? This, he's being Chico Marx. He's saying, who are you going to believe, right? You have to ignore everything your eyes are telling because your eyes will constantly tell you this was designed, and yet we know it evolved. Well, then if your eyes are always telling you, well, actually, Richard Dawkins has a similar quote. Richard Dawkins wrote once, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now, with that in mind, turn to Romans chapter 1. And start in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be made, uh, sorry, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Although they looked at it and said, this is designed, I refuse to accept that it's designed. Uh, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Doesn't that sound just kind of like putting God aside and embracing that somehow the creation can be its own creator? Therefore, what do we see? Frankly, what we see is our own society. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped uh, and served the creature, the creation, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. They don't want to retain God in their knowledge. Uh, I am out of time. I'll just wrap up with this one comment. Please don't fret when there's questions you can't answer. That's part of living on this side of the resurrection. Part of what I enjoyed about delving into all this stuff is how many questions the evolutionists also can't answer. There's so many questions. They, they don't even have a pretend answer for. And sometimes we fret because we can't explain a bone in a whale. Or we can't explain you know, how there's some bones that look this way or that. Um, we do have to be mature enough in the faith to recognize there are things we will not know in this life. 
Uh, I'll give you the reference for that. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, Now I know in part, but then I will know as I also am known. We're not going to have all the answers now. If someone tells you he has all the answers, he is selling you something. We don't have all the answers, but we can be assured by what the Apostle Peter says. Those things that lead to life and godliness, we do have those things, and we have them in abundance, and how grateful we should be for that.